Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode eight of the End of Sport Pod. My name is Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I'm joined by my good friend Derek Silva. Derek, how you doing? I'm doing well today. Thank you. Well, folks, we got a big show for you. Um, we have two of the leading scholars uh, and really sort of just experts in general on the college sport landscape broadly. Uh, Victoria Jackson, a historian from Arizona State University, and the uh, economist Andy Schwartz. Um, so. I won't say much more about what they're going to kind of break down for us because they really provide us with an incredibly comprehensive overview of the history, the legal landscape, um, and then the current name, image, likeness nonsense um, that's playing out. And then also offer their views on the future of um, college sports in the face of this pandemic. But just a couple of thoughts about the show in general. Um, Listen, we, we build this as a weekly podcast, uh, and you may have noticed that we're throwing out <laughs> way more than that, way more than that. Um, so I just wanted to kind of address that for a moment. We do in the long run, if lives ever return to some semblance of normalcy, whatever that means. But basically, if Derek and I end up with our <laughs> traditional obligations uh, as academics with full teaching loads, etc., uh, it's not going to be sustainable for us to put together two or three episodes a week. So ultimately, in the long run, um, we do still imagine this to be a weekly show but frankly like we're we've been excited about the opportunity to speak to folks um and to kind of to, to fill what feels to us like a kind of void in a sports world in our own lives and scholarly contributions. huge void. that's it we, we just we got energy for it right now so we're running with it that's kind of why we're pumping out all these shows at you and so in the near future um that's gonna keep happening so stay attuned to our feed uh check us out on twitter the twitter's gonna keep you up to date at end of sport pod same on instagram and you should be um, well versed with what's coming out uh and please let us know about what you like what you don't like um and with that said derek shall we shall we go to victoria and andy Victoria Jackson is Clinical Assistant Professor of History in the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies at Arizona State University. Her work on the intersection of sport and society, particularly college sport, has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, Slate, and The Independent, among many other venues. She is currently working on a book proposal entitled Black Labor, White Privilege, The Amateur Myth, and Big-Time College Sports in American Universities. And by the way, she's also the 2006 NCAA 10,000 meter national champion. On Twitter, she goes at History Runner. Welcome, Victoria. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure. We are also joined today by Andy Schwartz. Andy is an antitrust economist and partner at the economic consulting firm OSKR, where he consults on complex litigation matters in antitrust and sports and entertainment among many other areas. He is also the co-founder of the Professional Collegiate League and serves as its chief innovation officer. He publishes his thoughts on sports economics on the blog Sports Geekonomics. You can find him on Twitter at AndyHRE. Welcome, Andy. Thanks very much for having me. So the first thing we always like to start with, how is the pandemic treating both of you? Um, well, uh, healthy. Thank goodness. So um, that's good. You know, 
and uh, getting to spend a lot more time with my five-year-old. So um, yeah, you know, cr some crazy days here and there, but can't really complain in the desert in Arizona where we have lots of space and lots of, you know, things we can do outside. So hanging in. Yeah, for me, for me, um, I'm blessed that I'm was already a shut-in. Um, <laughs> so you know, not much has changed. Not really, um, but almost all the work I do. I do remotely with lawyers anyway, whether, so now I just don't have to drive uh, five to 10 miles to my office and sit in my office and talk to people on the phone. I sit at my, at my home office and do things on the phone. So i uh, been very lucky in that respect. And my, my wife is a school psychologist and she's doing all of her work via Zoom as well. So we're, we're just uh, hunkered down and enjoying some time together. Okay, well, glad to hear that. Um, well, today there's really a lot for us to talk about because there have been a ton of recent uh, developments in the NCAA, and you are really the two folks we want to talk to to break it down for us. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of name image likeness and all the other various sort of technical jargon that many people may not be familiar with, and we're going to try to familiarize you all with, um, we'd love to provide just a little bit of context for this whole complex notion in the NCAA of amateurism, compensation, etc. Uh, and so in order to do that, we want to kind of take two angles. Uh, first, like a kind of historical context, and then maybe getting into some of the legal dimensions. So first, Victoria, uh, as a historian of U.S. college sport, can you give our listeners a bit of a background on what the concept of amateurism is in the history of the NCAA, where it came from, why it's there, and maybe how it informs the current discussion? Sure, thanks. Um, and I'll, I'll try to keep this brief. And also... Um presented in a way that I hope is a little bit um, different from the kind of regular traditional histories we hear, because um, there's a lot of places where we can find that. So first, I think we can set amateurism aside for a moment because it really has become a meaningless term. And um, I, I see it used uh, really only for ideological purposes at this point. Um, that's not to say that I don't think there's value in having sports in schools. There's value in having sports in schools. But, you know, all that amateurism means um, in the current moment is it's, it's really whatever the current model is, followed by um, universities that participate and make the legislation for the NCAA. So, um, you know, the definition that reveals itself when we talk a little bit later about the name, image, and likeness um, working group recommendations that definition kind of reveals itself in there. And I see it as amateurism simply meaning not employees. Um, so, you know, if we're, if we're thinking about amateurism, it's, it's revitalized, it's an ideology that, that comes to the forefront around the world and in the Western world um, with the, the kind of entrenchment of the modern Olympic movement at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and when the world abandons amateurism, that's when it becomes kind of conflated with educational and American colleges. Um, we can talk about sport for sport's sake before then and kind of the value and the purity of, you know, the game playing it, you know, money is tainting and corrupting and all of that stuff when the rest of the world is kind of playing along with that too. But it really becomes conflated with um, education in American colleges once the rest of the world kind of walks away from that ideology. Um, you know, in the 70s and the 80s um, and the late 80s, early 90s is really when that that ends. Um, so what what makes college sports amateur 
isn't what makes college sports educational. Those are two different things. And I think it's important to kind of use that as our starting point. So if we're setting amateurism aside, the history of the NCAA and NCAA policies in French amateurism and kind of use it in an educational sense to kind of do whatever they want to do. So it really is whatever the NCAA says it is, like um, Alan Sack and Andrew Zimbalist have told us. Um, and, you know, there's a couple books if, you know, if there's some academics listening to this. Ronald Smith's Pay for Play, A History of Big Time College Athletic Reform, really is the kind of foundational history of NCAA policy changes. Um, and then the book that I really like to use with students is Michael Oriard's book, Bold Over, because it kind of, he places it in proper historical context. He sees these kind of business and policy changes to restrict athletes' rights. So the business growing and the policy changes to restrict athletes' rights, kind of hardening um, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And it just so happens, this is in that moment of the revolt of the black athlete on college campuses. So the first half of the book is telling that story and the second half of the book is looking at the growth of the big time and the policy changes. Um, if, if we're looking at this entrenchment of kind of um, a, a hardening of the rules, restricting what athletes can do as college athletes, um, you know, this, this history of the NCAA is a history of reform. So the organization is born in 1905, 1906, and it's a way to kind of appease the public around um, concerns around the brutality and injuries and deaths happening on the gridiron. And, you know, the next major moment historians like to point to is the Carnegie Report of 1929. That's um, basically, again, um, through the 1920s, there's, you know, the public is learning through kind of muckraking journalists' work about all the spending and all the kind of over-attention that's happening in sports on college campuses. And it's not just the schools, it's fans and students too, that they're caring too much about college sports. And um, one element of the Carnegie Report I like to point to is that people were outraged that coaches were making 10% um, more than faculty. Um, and and, <laughs> and that, was, that was an oh, outrageous thing. <laughs> Um, and so you have reform efforts within higher education coming off of that in the 30s. Um, Frank Porter Graham's Southern-led reform. Frank Porter Graham was the president of the UNC system, and he tries to put forth um, policies very similar to, to things we think about today um, when we're talking about college athletes' rights and what an educational model of college sport looks like. But then, right, there's a world war. There's World War II and the more mobilization effort and every, you know, everything coming off that war, people going to college, um, a booming economy, air travel that, that makes, you know, national play possible, TV, a consumer co culture. This is really where we see the modernization of the NCAA with Walter Byers, of course, um, kind of leading the way with these policy changes. So um, it's when the NCAA starts using the term student athlete, and that's a way to evade workers' compensation laws. Um, because a lot of states were awarding, you know, death benefits or um, workers' comp for injuries, um, uh, death benefits to widows and, and that sort of thing. Because the state industrial labor relations boards did see this as an employment contract when an athlete was signing um, for a scholarship with the university. In 56, um, that's when 
athletic scholarships become untethered to academic merit. Um, and then the, the, the series of policy changes culminate in 73 with the move from the four-year renewable, sorry, the four-year grant need to one-year renewable grants and aid. And a one-year renewable grant need looks a lot like an employment contract. But if you're calling it educational, you can make it look like you know, an employer-employee relationship in every other way and then just kind of slap education on it and do as you like. Um, so, you know, this, this is a white male story for the first more than 50 years of the NCAA. And I think that's really important to point out. This is where um, I would say, you know, my history is going, it's diverging a little bit from what you would typically hear when somebody's asking someone to speak about the history of amateurism in the NCAA. You know, for the first 50 years, this is a white male thing. College sports is a white male space. And as these policy changes are happening, <laughs> that's, you know, when things get begin to get more complicated and crazy, we have a lot of historical forces starting to crash into each other um, in the 1970s and 1980s. So these athletic departments that had been pretty much all white men for, you know, their entire existence up until this point are told that they have to provide equal opportunities for girls to play sports too. And they fight it and they fight it and they fight it for nearly 10 years until they kind of finally, um, the NCAA finally agrees to start um, and commence with women's championships. So they fight it in the courts, they fight it by trying to get exemptions for athletics through their state representatives um, and so on. And then we have, um, at the same time, the desegregation of PWIs, but in athletics really only. The rest of the university really isn't doing as much to desegregate as it should. A number of schools are sued because they're not desegregating at the rate that they should be. But in athletics, they are. Athletics is the exception to the rule. And then the TV money, you know, we have, um, the 1984 busting of the NCAA TV monopoly. So the money increases dramatically too. And all this is happening at the same time. Um, and then I think, you know, when we're talking about all of it, we need to place it in the broader history of higher education too. And the book I love for students to take a look at when we're kind of thinking about this in the broader history of higher ed is Murray Sperver's um, provocative book, Fear and Circus. Um, that looks at the changes taking place in higher education in the last probably quarter century of the, the 20th century, where these campuses really become entertainment centers and students are consumers and we have to please and entertain and kind of just keep them dumb and happy while they're in college. Now, I don't agree that's what, that's what we're doing in colleges, certainly you know, not at the university where I work, for example, but it is a really provocative idea that you know, PWIs in particular are spending all this money to try to get students to come so that they can have a good time and get a degree. And college sports is a huge part of that. Um, and then there's, of course, the racial and gender elements to it as well. So, uh, sorry for taking up so much time there. But, um, you know, it's, it's why I like to, to call this Jim Crow, right? College sports are there to entertain. They're at PWIs if we're talking about the Power Five. They're made up of majority black teams. And if we think about the origin of the word Jim Crow coming from vaudeville, um, you know, the purpose is to, to entertain the community and the student body. 
Yeah, no, that, that wasn't too much time, Victoria. Uh, thank you for that. That was a really an amazing synthesis of um, a long and complex history. Uh, so I hope that some of our listeners who may be a little bit unfamiliar coming into this to the NCAA context probably have a pretty darn good idea right now. Uh, and, and by the way, with the, the entertainment center piece, like as faculty, I, like I hear you loud and clear. That's not what we're trying to do. No question about it. That's not informing our thought process or our pedagogy in the classroom. But I mean, when I look around a campus, I get that point. Um, the food courts, the environment everywhere. I mean, it, like, it, feel, it does feel like an entertainment center. So I, I can completely, completely relate to that. And that's not what it felt like to me, by the way, at a Canadian, like the Canadian university I went to, um, you know, some years ago now, you know, like eight, 18 years ago or whatever it was when I arrived on campus. Um, it wasn't the same feel as I experience when I come to teach these days. So I think that's a powerful critique. Um, so shifting now a little bit, Andy, um, so Victoria's really sketched out this broader context for NCAA sport and how it's changed over time. But part of that context really is legal as well, right? Like things are happening in the courts to make it possible for this concept of amateurism to continue for this employment relationship, as you put it, Victoria, like it's, it really seems like it's an employment relationship for it to be nonetheless coded as something other than an employment relationship, right? Things are happening in the courtrooms. So are there important cases we should know about and arguments the NCA has made in court that perhaps are veiled by their performative press releases? Okay, yes. Um, I, can't, I can't begin to say how awesome uh, Victoria's uh, synopsis of the history was. Um, because that seemed like an that seems like a, an hour and a half lecture in 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 ten minutes and will well worth our time. I think it's really important the first thing that she said, which is that amateurism is whatever the NCAA says it is. That in fact was uh, the conclusion in some of the more recent antitrust litigation by uh, Judge Claudia Wilkin. Um, and and I while she was talking while Victoria was talking, I pulled up the NCAA's current 2019-2020 um, Division I rulebook. It's got some 400-some pages. And I, I, I turned in the good book to rule 12.02.10, the definition of pay. Um, there's actually not a definition of amateurism in that entire 400-page rulebook. Um, but there is a definition of pay. And pay, and I'll read this verbatim, pay is the receipt of funds awards or benefits not permitted by the governing legislation of the association for participation in athletics and what that means is that pay has nothing to do with whether you get money or not it has to do with whether we have said it's okay for you to get that money there's plenty of money in the system and and this is the real tension i'm not a lawyer but in the in the economic space where i operate that that intersects with the law is that if you're going to have a claim that the receipt of pay is what um, will ruin your organization's uh, popularity with consumers. And that's really the, the core of the antitrust uh, defense that the NCAA puts up, which is that if we pay our athletes, no one will watch. And then at the same time, you are paying them just, just um, collusively reduced amounts. You, you get yourself into all sorts of knots. And um, and so you asked me about key legal cases. I think, I think we can, um, to, to ping into what Victoria said, 1956, she spoke about, that's the first 
definition of the grant and aid, but it's also the first time that the NCAA actually enforced any amateurism rules. So you you have 50 years of the NCAA being out there and kind of tisk tisking the fact that co- people are being paid. Originally tisk tisking that coaches are being paid. Uh, eventually that uh, that athletes are being paid. And then finally in 1956, after an abortive effort in 48, um, the the NCAA gets the power to punish schools if they violate the rules. If you hear anybody tell you, well, the amateurism has been enforced for over 100 years, no. It, it started in 1956, so we're around, around 75 years. Um, uh, or 65, my bad. Um, Actually, I don't. I can't do math. I don't know which it is. Well, I can do. Um, I can do even less math than you. So trust me, I wasn't even doing the calculation in my head. <laughs> um, yeah, it's bad for someone in my profession to admit that, though. But so, um, where where the courts first uh, come in successfully, <laughs> I guess I should say, is is um, is probably two thousand and six. On this, there were many attempts prior to this for. Um, athletes or people in in the space to say this is violating our rights uh one that just jumps out in my head is there was uh i think his name was braxton banks and he sued the ncaa and got got the misfortune of having his case heard in the circuit that includes indianapolis and there was the crazy nonsensical claim that there couldn't possibly be a labor market for athletes because college scholarships didn't fluctuate with supply and demand. And if you're an, an economist and you think about the fact that there is a pre-existing agreement among all the schools not to let the price of scholarships rise with supply and demand, and then to have a court say that, well, that couldn't possibly be illegal because it worked, <laughs> because uh, the prices don't fluctuate with supply and demand, it's like your head immediately explodes. But so that was a typical thing, which was that there was such deference to um to the NCAA's claim that whatever we say is allowed is good and whatever we say isn't allowed is will demolish our sport that nobody got anywhere the as far as i know the first case that even made a little bit of headway is a case that i was involved in in 2006 it was it's called white v ncaa and it was a lawsuit by several athletes, including Jason White, not the star Jason White, but a Stanford athlete named Jason White. And essentially, it said that the NCAA itself said that it would be great. It would be ideal, was the quote. Miles, Miles Brand, the, the, the head of the NCAA prior to Mark Emmert, said it would be ideal if athletes received their full cost of attendance. But alas, they don't. This is back then. And this lawsuit said that, like, look, the only way you get to justify not paying athletes their full value is because you make this claim that it's better that they don't. Now you're telling us that it's ideal that they do they would get more, but for cost reasons you're you're not able to do it. That's not a valid justification under the antitrust laws. That case got certified as a class. As far as I know, it's the first time any class of athletes has ever gotten certified for damages. Um and then the lawyers settled it um, for, I, I think calling it a pittance does insult an insult to most pittances. And um, um, there was a four-year 
it was settled in 2008 with a four-year uh, like agreement that no lot more lawsuits will happen. So the NCA bought itself four years or so they thought. The next year, Ed O'Bannon sued on different grounds, so it was not barred by that settlement. And um, and obviously that was a watershed case. And during that period of time, um, I had been working in this space for a decade. Um, the settlement in the White case had really demoralized me. And I had kind of said, well, you know, maybe it's time to, to give up. But the Ed O'Bannon case awoke a lot of people, reawoke me. Um, Taylor Branch wrote an article during that time period that I think is vital for understanding how people finally made the mental shift to understanding that this is an, 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 an athlete's rights issue that not everybody has gotten there. You'll hear, still hear plenty of people say, I wish I could be exploited like a college athlete, to which I would say, not, not once the first practice starts, no, you wouldn't. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, but what they mean is, essentially, I had to pay for college. These people don't pay for college, they think. Um, therefore, how can you say this person's being exploited? Well, I'm using a, an economic definition. So first of all, when you get a college scholarship in exchange for providing labor services, athletic labor services, that isn't free. It's no more free than when you get your paycheck at the end of the week of working saying, well, my boss gave me money for free. No, your boss gave you money because <laughs> you did work. And it's not free money. It's, it's earned money. And it's not a free scholarship. It's an earned scholarship. So that's one important economic thing to recognize is that the exchange of goods and services for goods and services and cash is, is, a, is a, essentially a labor transaction or a, just a, a market transaction and not, and not charity. Um, and it's not receiving something for free. But then the, the, um, the second piece of that is the definition of exploitation, as I use it, is essentially you can look at what you would be worth in an open market where there was full and fair competition. And then you can look at where, what you receive in a market in which um, parties engage in some form or other of abuse of market power. Or let's just even say use of market power. And if that use of market power reduces what you get, that gap is exploitation. So here, if we can imagine what, if every school in the country um, could have offered Zion Williamson money for his freshman year, you know, on top of the scholarship, and then we we imagine, we know from some of the FBI wiretaps taps that, um, that uh, some schools offered, apparently, offered him six figures on top of the scholarship, then the fact that he didn't get paid more than a few thousand dollars in stipend is exploitation. So, so, um, so that's important to recognize. And in the Ed O'Bannon case, essentially it spans five years. The NCAA does its normal, this is a common thing that any big defendant will do. They try to bleed out the plaintiffs by making the case take forever. Plaintiffs, plaintiff attorneys working on a contingency case don't get paid until and unless they win. So that's five years of having to finance, and it was a ton. It was something on the order of $50 million of legal bills um, because of the scorched earth dragged out policy. But it backfired in some sense because Judge Wilkin, who like I, I can't even express to you how little she knew about American sports. It's hard to even imagine that anybody marinating 
in our culture would know that little about it. I give her credit for it. She was so focused on what she did that it just didn't invade um, her consciousness. She made a joke at one point about not knowing that the SEC wasn't the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, and so she spent five years learning on a blank slate. And, you know, four years into it, she's like, she said in open court, I wish you would stop using that amateurism term. It's not going to get you very far here because it just means whatever you think it, whatever you say it means. It doesn't, it does, it isn't informing me of anything important. And I think at that point, the NCA knew, uh oh, <laughs> um, we have lost, we have lost the high ground we're used to having. And I, even though I don't think the zeitgeist was affecting Judge Wilkin, I think nevertheless, maybe some sort of Jungian synchronicity, she was still reflecting that zeitgeist. Um, people were waking up to it. Millennials and Gen Z, and maybe some some freaky Gen Xers like me, were out there saying, like, this doesn't make any sense. And, you know, essentially you had you had this older guard of people that that believed somehow, Victoria said this really well, believed somehow that educational and professional were opposites on the same spectrum when they're completely different dimensions. Um, uh, those people were were losing their ability to control the message. And I, I think that's really important too, that um like Things like Deadspin, uh, Vice Sports, the fact that anybody – I could have a blog and I could be writing what I, what I have been writing for already for 15 years, but now regular old sports reporters might stumble upon it, and then I could engage with them through a, a medium like Twitter. It changed how people began to think about this, and the case – the O'Bannon case was really central to that. The end of the case, Judge Wilkin rules that what the – NCAA does when it gets together and annually publishes a maximum price that every school can pay its athletes is not surprisingly price fixing um, because that's exactly what price fixing is. It's it's not some people think oh well they get different amounts if you go to Duke versus if you go to Florida State tuition's different. Price fixing is not setting the price equal. It's agreeing what each price will be, and um, and in particular it's capping. Or putting a, a floor, or intentionally raising, or intentionally depressing what the market price would be. Um, Judge Wilkin, nevertheless, is a pragmatic person, and I can't blame her for that. She's re reluctant to do the simple thing, which is to say, "This is price fixing. Stop doing it." Instead, she says, "This is price fixing, and let me tell you a bunch of small changes you could make that would make it." sufficiently less damaging that on the facts that I have here, I couldn't rule that, that you're still in violation of the law. And they included, you have to raise the, the, the price of a scholarship, or sorry, sorry, the maximum cap on a scholarship all the way to cost of attendance. So essentially the, the item that the White case had argued, where the NCA said, if we do that, college sports will die. Judge Wilkins said, you must do it. And just to give you a quick jump to the future, they did do it. They've been doing it now for about five years. College sports didn't die. Maybe the, the pandemic has done it, but that had nothing to do with, with COA. Um, COA they always is, say that, the, that college sports are going to die. That's always. The second yes, they have to open yes. their wallets at least a little bit. So, oh, college sports are going to die. Yeah. So uh, when Victoria mentioned the Title IX phase, I was thinking of an NCAA statement from 
Tom Hansen, who was um, later the head of the Pac-10 in, in the Pac-10 days, but the time was a vice president at the NCA, and he literally said that if um, Title IX was enforced, that Nebraska would have to cancel football, and that was 1974. And um, uh, so, um, right as the O'Bannon case was ending. Another case got filed, uh, two cases actually, one uh, uh, one by Martin Jenkins and one by Sean Alston. And um, those cases eventually kind of merged together and they've separated. You'll hear it referred to as the Alston-Jenkins case or just Alston v. NCAA. Sometimes it's called the Kessler case because uh, high-powered sports Antitrust attorney Jeffrey Kessler is one of the the lead faces on that case, um, those cases, and and that case is still ongoing. It went up on appeal. The oral argument was absolutely actually one of the last things done in person in the in the Ninth Circuit before the the pandemic shut down. Um, it's online. You can you can watch it. It's it's not very long as as court arguments go, and um, and that case essentially just flat out challenged the right of the NCAA as an institution, not individual schools and not individual conferences, but the NCAA as a whole from setting any scholarship limit at all. Essentially saying that um, if the NCAA were to get out of the business of setting maximum scholarships and let the Pac-12, the SEC, the Big Ten pick whatever price they thought their consumers wanted, that that would be fine. And essentially if it's true, as the NCAA claims, that nobody will watch college sports if it's paid college sports, then the rational business uh, business move of the NCAA, sorry, of individual conferences within the NCAA, the SEC, would be to strictly enforce amateurism without any help from the NCAA. That the SEC would say to all of its members, you better not pay. We all know that the moment Alabama pays pays its football players, no one will watch Alabama football anymore. It's a self-enforcing claim. If it's true, there's no incentive. It's not like, you know, like when you have laws against pollution, um, pollution saying like, well, consumers don't like it if you pollute rivers. It's not self-enforcing because the individual polluter who sticks the, the, the chemicals in the river doesn't really bear all the costs. But if it is true that the individual football team that pays its players will lose any, all in, all fan interest, it's self-enforcing. And that's essentially the idea behind that case. Judge Wilkins, same judge, she heard it, went through the whole process again, concluded yet again that the NCAA is violating the antitrust laws, is engaged in price fixing. But again, she was unwilling to say, so stop. Um, and instead, she offered up another sort of regulatory solution, um, and that's being appealed. So that's, that's where we are. Um, I think the uh, one real important thing that I guess I would offer from an economic point of view is that, and I think we'll get there, is that all of this stuff really comes down to whose whose rights and whose preferences get priority. Um, I think, and I, I think don't think this is a crazy radical idea, that the Sherman Act, which is the the the, the U.S. antitrust law. The original U.S. antitrust law, as modified over the since it was passed in 1890, gives us all a legal right to a market free of collusion among competitors. Whether that's you can't price fix uh, um, computer monitors, 
which was a recent case, and people went to jail for that. You can't price fix among all of the, the providers of fast food what you're going to pay your assistant managers. That's another case that's been in, in, the, in the courts, and it turns out you know, that fast food places were, were agreeing not to poach each other's employees. Things like that are, are illegal. And similarly, you can't band all 354 Division I schools together and then um, say that what you're collectively offering is a, is a fair market value. And, and so that's a right. What the school says, ah, yes, but if we do that, then we'll have to spend money in ways we don't want to spend. We would rather spend that money, and this may not be true what they actually do, but they say, we'd rather spend that money on wrestling scholarships. We'd rather spend that money on, on, um, on edu education. We don't want to pay people, but that's not a – schools don't have a right to affect the market prices of the inputs to their, their productive process. They do have a right to a free market, as do the athletes. And so what we have in the courts essentially is an upside-down system, I think, where the convenience of the schools is given priority over the rights of the athletes. And it's easy in the minds of, of the system. And it does not to be the courts. It's also the legislatures. It's also the NLRB that essentially, because it's inconvenient for the schools to pay their athletes, that's seen as a valid reason to either disallow it completely, well, I really, I really should say it's not so much disallow pay, but to allow collusion to prevent pay, or to um, allow nearly full collusion. That's the best we've gotten so far in the courts, is to reduce the collusion, not to end the collusion. And, and in everything else that we talk about today, I think you'll see You'll see where that that rights framework is really really helpful. Sorry, Andy, that was awesome. And I think um, when you were talking about how um, Claudia Wil uh, Wilkins, you know, didn't have much understanding of college sports, I think, and 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 then this awakening. You also spoke to this awakening um, in this moment with um, Taylor Branch's article coming out in the Atlantic, the academic fraud coming out of UNC. Um, that story kind of leaked started leaking out the same time that um, Branch's um, article basically calling this a civil rights issue, college sports as, a, as you know, a civil rights issue, you know, a Pulitzer Prize winning historian of the civil rights era in America is now turning his attention to college sports. And I think, um, you know, most Americans um, up until that point of awakening and maybe even still through that awakening, um, have bought the NCAA's messaging because part of this is trying to combat the NCAA's messaging that is so frustratingly loud and um, dominant. The rhetoric is so dominant, and it's it's really hard to try to crack through that. And um, one part part of it that I see that isn't necessarily deployed in an obvious way; it's done more subtly is this use of a gender justice shield to kind of justify or excuse racial injustice. And when I was talking about these historical forces kind of crashing into each other in the 70s and 80s, um, in the archives, I saw the rhetoric of, a, of the broad and expansive athletic program with lots of teams as a positive good. And I'm using positive good, that's my language that I'm kind of dropping onto this kind of you know, trying to, to hark slavery. <laughs> and, and that is, um, there are people who are being exploited, to use, you know, Andy's term, and there are people who are benefiting from this system. And so, you know, 
um, not to, to go back and toot my own horn some more, but um, Nathan, when you, you introduced me, you mentioned that I was an NCAA champion um, individually on the track. And, and I consider myself to be a beneficiary of college amateurism. Like I'm part of this feel good. You can point to athletes like me who are, you know, benefiting from this and, sh and show the virtue of the scholarship model, right? I got a world-class education. I got a world-class athletic experience and never mind who's paying for it. And at the same time, not getting the world-class education we were all promised. Because I, I went to UNC at my, as my undergraduate institution, where you know the most egregious case of academic fraud in NCAA history was taking place. So I can actually point to athletes who helped pay for my world-class, you know, idyllic college experience and then didn't get the education that I got. And, you know, I went pro in both. I went pro in school and I went pro in track. And a lot of those athletes don't end up going pro, um, even though they've been told their whole lives that this is their path and this is what they're going to do. But then they don't have the education to fall back on. So um, that that's really the perverse part to me, that we're almost being used to hold up this system and continue to justify that exploitation. The claim that Victoria's scholarship was paid for by denying male athletes their, their full value, besides being really rhetorically um, problematic, I don't even think it's true economically for the most part. So I think that almost all of the the extracted value is going to other men, mostly the coach, mostly the athletic director. There are some female athletic directors there. Um, construction uh, construction firms, which are very male, um, and and to the shareholder class of those construction firms, which maybe those are 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 less gendered, but maybe not. And also very very white and and. That's true. Women's sports are also a lot whiter than, than men's sports. So to the extent to which some does spill over into women's sports, that's also this, this weird, I mean, it's not so weird. It happens all the time in our society that, that, that uh, white people benefit and, and black people don't. But when it's literally portrayed as a, we have to take the money from this privileged class to help this unprivileged class, and it's coming from a 19-year-old man who's on a Pell Grant, to the you know the child of two professors uh, who um, uh, went to a private school, it's a very weird moment for the country to suddenly become very redistributive and and anti-capitalist. But it happens. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and, and I think, that, right? yeah, in the one spot where Republicans don't believe in the market, and um, uh, and so I think that that's important too. That besides being um, a really bad sort of like theory of why we should do it. It's probably also not true. Yeah, I, I think so. To to link this to um, to very very recent discussions on Wednesday, 
we we got this sort of news this past Wednesday, this news from the NCAA that they had finally sort of opened the floodgates and they were going to like allow college athletes to finally monetize their name, image and likeness rights. Um, and, you know, the Twitterverse kind of exploded. People were all talking about it. Um, but I, I, I have a sneaky suspicion that you two might be a little bit more critical than the the mainstream narrative that's going out there that like this is like an opening of the floodgate. So I want to begin with Victoria to just get your opinion about what you heard this past week um, in regards to the NCAA and, and name, image, and likeness rights. Sure, thank you. Um, well, I I think um, Andy's going to have a lot of great stuff to say about this. And um, I think we're going to agree in a lot of ways. This seems to be another moment where, you know, the NCAA has a press release that says a lot of things, but then can be jumped on like, oh, everything's changing. This is now, you know, the NCAA is finally on board and they're totally going to make changes to allow um, athletes to start monetizing their name, image, and likeness from third parties. And then if you actually read the full report um, and recommendations from the working group. Um, there's so much tempering language that I'm really skeptical um, there's going to be any sort of opportunity for athletes to do this at all if um, you know this working group gets its way. Um, I just a couple things that really struck me. Um, you know, I I wonder if they're seizing upon what they is an opportunity to just shout social media influencer over and over to try to redu reduce name, image, and likeness <laughs> to that, like kind of narrowing the scope of modernizing. Like they, you know, they keep saying, well, we need to modernize the NCAA um, bylaws and rules to, to bring them up to, to the current 21st century moment. And there's all these social influencers, social media influencers. I'm like, my God, this is this was supposed to be so much more than that. Um, the word guardrails is something that I'm already sick of in this report, just makes me more sick of. And the, the other thing that I find troubling um, is the use of student athletes to legitimize these recommendations. I think most of us see through it when there's a few student athletes on a committee or, you know, the, the statement that the Student Athlete Advisory Committee, the national one, um, was also asked for its thoughts and input. Um, if you go to an athletic department, and I've been to a lot of athletic departments and talked with a lot of students who play sports at a lot of universities, and those who are usually volunteering for these positions, um, first of all, the vast majority of athletes are pleasers um, and type A's and just want to help and do good and be part of the brand. And, you know, we get to do this awesome thing and and any sort of kind of critical thinking, critical doesn't even mean negative, but any sort of critical thinking is, is somehow detracting from the goal of winning and being the best, right? And, and kind of what's so great about us all being members of this institution. And so those who are volunteering for those roles or who are being recommended by their coaches for those roles are typically people who are not gonna be um, dissenters or, 
you know, the, the people who like to, um, <laughs> in our world, in faculty meetings, like contest every single little thing so that the faculty meeting goes on for hours and hours, right? These athletes are going to do whatever they can to, to try to please the people in the room. So it shouldn't be current student athletes. It should be recent um, student athletes who care about the future of college sports. And there's so many faculty who played college sports. Like, I think those are the ideal people to be sitting on these committees. I'm sorry, that was a bit of a rant. Um, the, the last of my preliminary impressions is that this is so US-centric. Um, it, it's frustrating to me that so many of our conversations about American college sports are thinking that the people who are playing sports in American universities are all Americans. That is not the case at all. And you know, anytime there's a congressional hearing and you've got, I understand that you know, if you're on a subcommittee hearing and you're talking about college sports and you want to signal to your constituents you know, that you care about them, you're not going to be talking about the international athletes or even having them on your radar. But there are 20,000 international athletes in the NCAA. And like, like they're, they're making money. <laughs> they're making money. They're not doing it in the US, but a lot of them are making money. And um, you know, so many of these athletes are competing in the Olympic games now, like, and, and you know, open to getting prize money or monies from their national federations. You know, because these campuses are the place to train to represent your country. It's the best facilities for age group you know, that, that age, that developmental age in the world. Um, and you have access to the best training and competition in the world. So it's, it's this great pathway for those who wanna to try to represent their countries in the Olympics. So just one quick example, um, the Rio 2016 Olympic Games, the Pac-12 conference, so the conference where I competed as a graduate student, where I'm now a member of the faculty, the Pac-12 would have placed fifth as a country in Rio in the medal count only behind the US, China, Great Britain, and Russia, and only one medal behind Russia. So the, the Pac-12 earned 55 medals, 25 of them were gold, and these athletes represented 47 countries. There were 47 countries represented by Pac-12 athletes in Rio. That's unreal. Six Olympians. So again, sorry to, to go off on this, but it's so unbelievably frustrating that we're only thinking in a U.S. context when we're thinking about the possibilities here um, or what's already happening outside of the U.S. when there's athletes coming and playing in the college space. Andy, I'm interested to get your take on this um, as well. Well, so I think Victoria said it very well that the NCAA is, is they're horrible about um, treating athletes' rights as rights, but they're great at issuing press releases and fooling uh, people that only pop their head up to look at the headline and then go back to whatever they are doing in their in their normal life, so that the folks like us who are more focused on the day to day can see through it, but that it it completely bamboozles everyone. Here's the thing I'd like everyone to do is if if you can go to the press release that you talked about, hit Control F and look for the word rights or right, and you won't see it anywhere in there. Even though this whole press release is about the uh, changing the way the NCAA interacts with athletes' name, image, and likeness rights, they don't use the word rights uh, in that press release. They talk about um, name, image, and likeness activities. They go out of their way 
not to use the primary word that we should be using when we're talking about this, because um, if you boil down the long, the larger document, um, they're concerned that if the athletes have these rights, then they might get sued. The NCAA might, and so on. Um, on a key page in the longer document that they release, which is um, page two, they say they say that um, they say that the the rule the 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 meat of what they have suggested might not be possible and I, I think it's useful to hear what they say they say it became apparent during the working group's deliberations that certain potential avenues for managing the NIL issue are complicated or precluded altogether by the potential application of state NIL laws and or federal antitrust law to the association's bylaws. So that's one sentence, and I think it's it it kind of invalidates three quarters of what this this 31-page document is saying, because what it's saying is any place where existing athlete right, whether enshrined in state law or federal law, uh, conflicts with what we're proposing, we probably can't do what we're proposing without getting essentially a congressional blessing, an override, an exemption. Um, and they say that later in the paragraph, um, that they there may be a need for the association to prioritize one or more of its recommendations in engagement with Congress. So they're lobbying to essentially reduce athletes' rights. That's the only way this is going to happen. And so now maybe I'm not being cynical enough because I don't think our current Congress is going to roll over and give the NCAA the exemptions that they've asked for. And so then, if that's the case, then I think where we're left with is that they have done, um, they've offered up sort of three big buckets of changes. The first big bucket is look, there's been a bunch of things that have been technically against our rules for a long time, but anytime anybody asks us, we've granted them a waiver. And we're just going to change the rules because if you're getting a waiver every single time, why go through that headache? It's like it's easier for us to still allow it. And while that's good because it's good that the athlete doesn't have to ask permission to use his or her rights, it's not actually changing the actual like the pragmatic effect of the rule system because the rule system was already allowing it. It's just streamlining it. Good, but not earth shattering. And you, second, can you just give us, sorry, before you get on to the second, can you just give us an example of one of those cases, like the, the kind of case we're talking about there that people get waivers for? Um, I think it's something like where um, recently, I think Trevor Lawrence and his, um, his significant other, made a website that would raise money for um, people who were displaced from their job because of the right. COVID-19 yeah. pandemic. And um, Clemson wouldn't let him do it, but then they asked the NCA and they got a waiver. So things that no one in their right mind would think are bad for college sports. Okay. Um, <laughs> but that nevertheless, out of a, an excess of exploitative need, the NCAA b banned until they, like, you can't do it unless we think about it and maybe you can, or unless we get some bad publicity and then we let you do it. Um, uh, and there's there's a group of, of, of people that I think correctly, at least as of 2011, when all this stuff sort of shifted, which said that if the NCAA had just appointed a, a vice president of common sense who 
whose job it was to find all of the extraordinarily egregiously stupid rules and get rid of them that the snowball would maybe wouldn't have gotten so big as it was rolling down the hill that most people just want their their sports dang it and and it just that the the incredible stupidity of the cupidity um led let, leads to things like there was a rule it's gone now but it was on the books for a long time which said that if you gave an athlete a bagel that was amateur if you gave the athlete a bagel with cream cheese that was professional <laughs> and um and when you have stupid rules like that it's it's easy for folks like me to then lump in the real egregiousness stuff it, it was a it was like an api that allowed allowed justice to hook into people's brains because obviously the bagel rule was stupid. But anyway, that's one one group of set of things. The second bucket is a, a, a better one. It's the set of things that athletes do that is commercially viable that isn't about sports. So lots of athletes are multi-talented people. They are also good musicians, as an example. So if, if an athlete is also recording uh, – music and putting it up on iTunes as it stands now they're not allowed to use their name on that it's, i know that's weird but the NCA's convenience essentially asserts that your right to your own name is subject to our rules and um it could be you're a good programmer and you make an app it could be you're an author and you write a book where where very clearly what the value is that's being driven there is is tangential at best and really unrelated to being an athlete. Um, and as an example, kind of in the past, tying things better, Jeremy Bloom, uh, who's now a broadcaster, um, when he was in college, he was a world-class skier and a very good football player too. I mean, I think he did make the NFL briefly. So a very good college football player. Um, but he was an Olympic skier. And in skiing, it's always been it's been the case for a long time that essentially um, athletes use endorsements and 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 do ads for ski equipment people to finance their training. And I don't know the full details of that, but essentially the Olympics had blessed that and it was okay by the time Jeremy Bloom was doing it. I know that in the past like Ingemar Stenmark was was banned for having taken too much endorsement money but from the Olympics but but um uh Jeremy Bloom he's also I I guess it's fair to say a handsome guy so he was doing modeling work and essentially he was the reason that ski companies wanted to use him in the ads was not just cuz he was a good skier but also cuz he was good looking and the NCAA said to him that's fine but you can't play college football and get paid to be a model and he sued and he lost um again very very dismissively he lost uh because because amateurism and um essentially i as i understand it now if if an athlete like if an athlete is a great volleyball player and also is a fashion model that that fashion model career is now going to be allowed so again that's really good and it's it's broadening the athlete's ability to use their existing rights that they shouldn't have that shouldn't be infringed at all in a space unrelated to to college sports and how could they even have thought that was a problem but they did and um and that's good and both of those things that i just talked about those first two buckets those are what the ncaa says at the end of this long document they'll be announcing the details of by the end of august so when august rolls around 
you're not going to hear anything about about athletes commercializing their athletic value. You're only going to hear things about athletes commercializing their non-athletic value and these sort of like one-off like waiver options. I can't help but think this constantly when when I see the NCAA doing this. It's just like this seems to be so contradictory to every other like economic cultural message coming out of the western world which is basically like you work hard like be creative be innovative and you will be able to like live out your dream like this idea of the american dream and yet in this one very small like relative in terms of number of people this one relatively small group of people we say no you absolutely cannot be creative you cannot like go search out like innovation and be and and be uh look or, or try to create something that people can use or that that will sell things or that will be innovative you are the the one class of citizen that is quite literally not allowed to do that. It seems so contradictory to the entire message that we hear growing up um, in the Western world. Yeah. So, so, so the way I've been thinking about this is those first two proposals are trying to move the NCAA from the 19th century to the 20th century. And um, uh, because in the 19th century, I think there still was a lingering thing that it was crass to be about money. It didn't stop people from wanting to make a lot of money, um, but at least culturally, um, living a, a life of, a, of, of gentlemanly leisure was seen as the ideal. And in the 20th century, I think, and at least in this country, um, very much you know, the business of, of, of America is business. And, um, and so those first two things kind of get the NCAA all the way up to maybe 1980 um, in, in our culture when the Olympics said, you know what, actually, um, we're going to not prevent you from uh, making money. But but they didn't quite get to the Olympic stage because this third bucket, it's focused on what everybody who's sort of heard about this sort of thing, athletes are finally going to be able to commercialize their name, image, and likeness. Um, what they think of is doing commercials where it's a guy in a football uniform saying, you should buy this car. And um, it's somebody, you know, at a, at the local restaurant saying, come down and order two pizzas and I'll sign your autograph. And where, where the value that they are commercializing comes directly from the fact that they're good at their sport. Um, that is the third bucket. And throughout this 31 pages, you see them saying things that I think are very clear that says, this piece is contingent on Congress giving us both both a, an antitrust exemption and also a preemption of state NIL laws so that we have one um, weaker federal law on NIL and we are no longer subject to the antitrust laws that have been kicking our butt in court for the last decade because we are a price-fixing cartel. Please let us continue to be a price-fixing cartel. And in exchange, we will, we will allow athletes to moderately commercialize some of their value while we keep the rest. And um, that is a piece that's coming out in October. Um, so it's two months after the August piece, piece. And I think people should listen very carefully from what's coming out of Washington, D.C. I heard, I heard Congressman, uh, sorry, Senators Murphy and Booker issue a statement this week that 
was for the most part, I think, positive, saying we're not just going to roll over and give you what you want. I got a little bit nervous when I heard what they said, but we will if you give us what we want because the list of things that we want, in my mind, while none of the things on there was bad, it was a it was an incomplete set of things that I would want if I were a head of an athlete union um, in, in this negotiation among things like, well, I, I want my athletes to have the right to ask their school, how much are you going to pay me to, to, to be a, uh, a member of the marketing team of your university? Because that's what the football team is. I know I'm getting a scholarship. That's great. I want that. I'm, I know I have to go to school for it. That's great. But what are you paying me? And unless and until there's room for that in the structure, for one, it's not the it it it's it's not a good deal for the athletes, but it's also actually not going to save the NCAA. And I know we'll talk about this later. But folks like like my organization, the 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 PCL, Professional Collegiate League, we would love for their the NCAA to get a, a some sort of exemption that doesn't let them pay athletes because that'll just make it the all the easier for us yeah. to compete. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you on this this idea of the cartel or a, a monopsony of 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 the, the sort of labor market going in um but i i wanted to briefly before we get into the pcl stuff i wanted to briefly um ask you both about what victoria mentioned earlier as being like the guard some of these like guardrails um in the report uh, particularly this idea and i think we'll start with victoria here um just i, I i'm i'm interested in getting victoria's opinion on this idea that like any compensation should be tethered to educational expenses. And I know this is like, these are terms borrowed from O'Bannon, uh, from the O'Bannon case, but like this idea that like any, any compensation should be tethered to educational expenses. It seems to me from a, a, a lay person's um, uh, perspective that like this completely would prohibit any like Coca-Cola or Nike deal or Reebok deal or or any big deal because it has to be tethered to educational expenses. So could you maybe briefly give us your perspective there? Oh yeah, I I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is this is another example of, you know, the the NCAA and the member institutions trying to grab it and use all the right words. And then the fine print is, but we're really not going to do all the big words <laughs> that, you know, other people have forced us to say. So, you know, it's, I mean, the rhetorical shifting has been amazing. Um, I think the MO of a lot of these leaders is like, there's opportunity in every crisis. And so, um, what Andy was saying about looking for an antitrust exemption, um, I think that's what they're working for here. Like, that's the opportunity in the crisis. Um, in 2014, when we had, like, another <laughs> um, just mounting of pressures and issues and the congressional hearings and King Culture's unionization effort and on and on and on, like, we now hear these crazy statements from Mark Emmert, for example, saying, like, We've done so much to force, you know, change, and we've led the way and and opening up and expanding athletes' rights, like um, cost of attendance and moving back to four-year scholarships and health and medical coverage and all of this stuff. And it's it was in reaction to and and so the opportunity and the crisis there in 2014, I think, was 
the autonomy move. Um, that was an opportunity for the power five to, to really get to keep even more because they could say, well, we can do this. So let us do this to appease these uppity athletes. And then, you know, it was a power move and now they're making even more money than ever. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm totally <laughs> um, with Andy on this. And, and the, um, the guardrail stuff, yeah, the tethering the education, the, you know, well, it all needs to be approved and um, all the gray area stuff, like it's all in the gray area. Like, and it's all, it's not like clear cut what is gonna fall on the clean side of this new line that they're drawing in the sand. It's like, is there gonna be, like are all the compliance people now gonna be like NIL people in each of the schools? Like, it, it's just, I think it's, they're working really hard to make, to, to reduce that and minimize it and restrict it and narrow it so that all of these scary things that they've thrown in the fine print to scare people away from trying to even implement this will get them what they want, which is like a very narrow end, end result if, if this is what ends up happening. So before you jump in, Andy, maybe to just to broaden your answer to, to the PCL piece to come back around to that, because I think it's appropriate to kind of fit it in here. Um, it's It's, I think, pretty obvious to all of us that NIL here is is just, you know, yet another clever move by the NCAA to evade what we all think is necessary, which is that for student athletes to actually be compensated for their labor. Uh, and, and frankly, to get rid of the term student athlete altogether, to call them athletic workers or whatever, because that's what they're doing is labor for the universities that's generating revenue that they're not seeing, as you've both um, so eloquently described in all these various ways. So NIL now is one alternative, right? The NCI or like this some this kind of weird abridged guardrailed NIL that's ultimately like not very much at all, but but is a PR win already for the NCAA, which is the whole point of it. So we have this on one hand. Um, one thing we might get to is the fact that we now have the NBA's G League, uh, which is the, the so-called development league. This is their minor league, has suddenly started um, coughing up some. Fairly serious cash for uh, the top men's basketball prospects. Uh, a few years ago, they were offering about $100,000. But the top prospect this year, in terms of the amount of money offered, received about $500,000 offered, sounds like, as well as additionally education expenses to be subsidized by the NBA. And we've seen a few athletes, more than a few athletes, kind of jump at such opportunities. So it seems like this is one alternative pathway that has opened. And it is appealing to the athletes, unsurprisingly, precisely because they are acutely aware of the dynamics we've been discussing here in the NCA and how unjust they really are to the athletic worker. But we also have a third alternative, and that is the Professional Collegiate League. Uh, I'd love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about what you guys are trying to accomplish. Sure. Um, and I think it's important to recognize uh, that what the NBA and the G League did in this most last couple of weeks, it's, it's a great thing for a handful, two handfuls of athletes. And it's not in any way challenging the NCAA. The NCAA has been begging the NBA since the O'Bannon case anyway, could you please end one and done so that the five to 10 athletes who are good enough when they are leaving high school to make it into the NBA would just do that. And in the NCAA's mind, and therefore Anybody who has any positive economic value above a scholarship will be gone, and we can go back to 
tamping down the pay of everybody else um, because in their mind, we can just take away this. this the, we'll have the rhetorical thing, which is, well, if you want to get paid, the NBA is no longer closed to you. And for a variety of reasons that the NBA, that's a negotiated, uh, the, the one and done rule is negotiated with the union. The, neither side has wanted to reopen those negotiations yet. So what the N, NBA did this this last past month was essentially do an end around around the union and find a way to hire those five to 10 guys. And as far as I know, it's about four guys right now. I think they have plans to expand a little um, to hire them for almost like a, a, a year in training. Let them be, let them be none and done, but, but not, but not quite get there. And I think it's fabulous for them. I think it's great that instead of earning a scholarship and $3,500, they're going to earn a scholarship and and five hundred thousand dollars you know bully for them and it probably is a better path for them to make the nba than going to work for a coach who might not be as nearly as focused on their athletic development in terms of making them a good pro there's lots of guys who i think stagnate in the collegiate system because the coach has them play out of position because it fits better for the coaches winning or losing so so that's good but it doesn't it's not a systemic a problem solver because it doesn't solve the fact that there's a huge swath of athletes who are not going to get um, first ra- necessarily first round draft choice money or 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 even if they are are not going to be lottery picks like these guys are who are worth as economic assets a ton of money and for whom uh, the fruits of their their own personal efforts are denied, um, and that's where the PCL comes in. Essentially, the the PCL, where the Professional Collegiate League, we aim to be the premier college basketball league. So, what the G League is doing with this team is not really a college team. While they get um, scholarship money, they're not in school while they're doing it. They're focused entirely on basketball, and that's great if that's what you want to do. What we want to do is find a way to not make athletes choose between the two. We want athletes who want to um, better themselves professionally and educationally to be able to do both and have neither of those rights compromised. So, for example, our games are in the summer. Um, we'll start right sometime after Memorial Day. We'll finish up around Labor Day. Essentially, we're going to take all, all or almost all of the travel of basketball and put it when there isn't school so that, um, so that when athletes – are in school of course any as victoria can tell you any any um world-class athlete when they're in school is also working on their own athletic development but it's different when you're training for for skill development and maybe maybe uh, practicing once in a while to 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 scrimmage with your teammates versus being in full-on game mode every two days missing five days of class because you took a a road trip etc so we essentially want the athlete when they're in school to be focused on development, whether it's educational or athletic. And when it's summertime, their summer job comes along and they're working as athletes. We're paying between fifty dollars and $150,000 on top of a guaranteed five-year scholarship. And, and they're essentially, other than maybe working on like, a, like, like some personal development skills, like public speaking classes that we might do in conjunction with with the reg, with our basketball season, things that will be helpful to athletes as they make their way into higher levels of professional sport. Um, the focus is almost entirely on basketball, so they can be their best on the court. Um, our athletes have 
NIL rights, not NIL privileges. We come to the 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 industry with the recognition that we think we can be a very profitable league taking the athletes rights as a given and then building our sports structure around it so our contract essentially says you have the right to your in, you have the right to com- fully commercialize your name image and likeness and, and athletic reputation and I, I think we should always say that because the NCA doesn't want it to include athletic reputation um, on any individual deal, including sneaker deals. By the way, if you look at the NCAA announcement, they're very clear that none of this applies to sneaker deals. They say at the very end, we might consider it at a, at a later date, but for now, they want to punish the sneaker companies for having dared to pay athletes under the table previously. They don't want this to reward those teams. And you can see this even in the NCAA's enforcement action. Just yesterday, they lowered the boom on Kansas saying, among other things, Adidas paid your athletes and that's bad. But if you really believed in NIL rights, Adidas paying athletes as third party to wear shoes is exactly what an, a, a normal NIL deal looks like. And so I think you can, you can judge their rhetoric or you can judge their actions. They're, they're punishing schools or trying to punish schools for doing the very conduct that they want us to think they're now okay with. So I think it's pretty clear they're not okay with it. Um, and, and so our athletes will essentially be able to they'll earn a salary, they'll get benefits, they'll be in a 401k. If they get injured, they'll be they'll be qualif- they'll get workers' compensation insurance. Um, aside from that, we're also going to help them work to get loss of value insurance that's real and not the sort of like almost impossible to cash in on uh, insurance that some athletes in in the college system get. They'll have the the ability to uh, commercialize their their name, image, likeness, free of those quote-unquote guardrails. Recognize what the word guardrails is. Guardrails is saying a curtailment of your rights for our benefit. Um, it's 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 not protecting the athlete. It's not guardrails to make sure that the athlete isn't um, taken advantage of by an unscrupulous sponsor. Um, it's guardrails to make sure that the athlete isn't able to earn his full or her full value in the marketplace. And this is, I think, a big important thing. You know, at in the PCL, we have we our, our CEO is a lawyer, and and we have plans to essentially ask athletes at their request, if you'd like, let us take a look at any NIL contract that you sign, and we can tell you whether we think you're being underpaid, because an athlete might not have a good sense of the market, right, and might not come from a family that knows everything, and might have chosen a, a cousin as an agent, and the agent feels that they did a good job, but we could say, well, actually, people of your caliber are earning twice that. The NCAA has explicitly talked about having a committee, and their job is to make sure the athlete isn't getting paid too much and that they would punish them if they did. And so I think that 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 captures in a nutshell the difference between a a, a college sports league that's focused on maximizing athletes' potential in all sorts of ways, which is what we want to do, and one which is, is really focused on extracting as much a highest percentage as possible. Another thing that the NCAA is doing that I think is just just shows how much they care more about winning than th- like winning the the power struggle than win-win solutions is that they have explicitly banned the idea of an athlete doing a commercial in his school uniform. Not just saying that the athlete can't do it without permission from the school. Not just saying that the athlete couldn't make a deal and then the school couldn't separately make a deal with the same 
the same sponsor to, to get both of those rights into the thing, but banning it. That is a lose-lose outcome because the athlete has, has value without his jersey. The jersey has value without, his, without the athlete. But together, the, 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 the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And that win-win, that, that surplus, that's the whole like, benefit of that's – that's capitalism in a nutshell is that we believe – economists who, who believe generally in, in, in some form of capitalism is that those win-win transactions generate surplus and then market power is about dividing up that surplus. The NCAA is essentially creating a lose-lose situation because now instead of schools and athletes partnering to make money, um, the school and the athlete will actually be out in the marketplace competing against each other and driving down the price that um, local businesses have to pay. Because if I can't get the the monopoly deal from the school to be the official um, the official uh, car wash of Clemson football, now I can be the official car wash of Trevor Lawrence. And so there's essentially there's more supply now in the marketplace. If 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 God help me, somehow I ended up being in charge of the NCAA, like I would have done it the exact opposite way. I would have said, you can only do deals if you partner with us so that we can make the most money off of you and then you can make a little bit more. But but there's so much into keeping it apart. So in the PCL, um, to the extent to which an athlete makes a deal where he then would want to. Uh, grow the value of that deal by using his his PCL logos, which and which by the way, um, one of the fun things of this summer is going to be the rollout of all of our various uh, team names and, and logos. I hope people go out and buy lots of gear. Shameless plug there. Um, uh, but we of course would would work, assuming that we don't have a conflict with one of our sponsors. We would love to give the athlete permission to wear. The uniform because we think that grows our brand too and it allows the athlete to make more money and cut us in on the deal it's it's win-win so i think this is really important a thing that i often hear from people when i my lay out my pitches like yeah but but the colleges provide an education and and that's invaluable but recognize that that our model is one in which we think the athletes so we're our foundation will pay their scholarship and we think that the education that our athletes get will be stronger than the exact same athlete at the exact same school because there's nothing to stop an athlete in our program from playing for our Raleigh team and going to Duke or going to UNC and um, go, getting the same education, but he's not going to get shunted into a fake class to keep him eligible. He's going to be treated like a regular student when he's not part of the athletic department. And, and we think that's empowering. Um, and, and it's up to us to make sure that our athletes find a spot where they can thrive. So that's another thing is that we're more flexible. If you're not ready for a four-year college, but you're ready for community college, that's okay with us. If, if, what you, if you're really not academic, if what you really want to do is go to culinary school, as long as it's an, as an accredited vocational program, that's fine with us too. Um, and we're not just focused on, you know, guys coming out of high school. We, we want to make the option open. If you're at a school right now and you're thinking about transferring because your coach is making your life hell, but you like your academic institution, you, you shouldn't have to actually transfer academic institutions to make your, your athletic career thrive. So if you're at a school and let's say you're at, at Temple University and you're thinking about, gosh, I, I want to transfer – because, but I like Temple, stay at Temple and play for our Philadelphia team. 
And so we talk about these athletes as being transfers, but it's really just taking their talents elsewhere. It's not they, they, you could also transfer if that if it, if the if the unhappiness is academic, but it's not required. And then, of course, we also think we're going to be the best avenue for international athletes, many of whom, as you point out, Victoria, are already essentially professional and really can't make themselves always fit within the NCAA, that they get in trouble. Or if it's tennis, for example, the NCAA basically looks the other way. Essentially, we think that we're also the best way for a great European basketball player to get exposure in the U.S., to build his brand in the U.S. before becoming an NBA athlete, or if he's going to go back to Europe to then be able to take his his U.S. fan base with him uh, and go over there. And that's really, really us. I, that's, I wouldn't call it a nutshell because I think I went on for pretty long. But but that's the point is that we think we think that a thriving professional league can exist within the college space. Yeah, I, I think um, from from an educator's perspective, I think I'm a little bit skeptical of anyone who argues this is personally speaking, anyone who argues that. Um, the education is invaluable. Um, I've seen uh, a number of of sketchy things happen with, with collegiate athletes. So I, I, I would push back a little bit on that. I think the education of a university degree can be invaluable, certainly. But um, there are some issues there, absolutely. So if anyone is interested in checking out more about um, the PC League, the PCL. Um, it's the PCLeague.com. Um, if you're interested in that, I think it's like, um, it sounds like a really uh, amazing alternative for, for not only um, collegiate athletes, but also international athletes, as you're um, mentioning. So I urge our listeners to at least check it out. Um, there's a website with a lot, a lot of information um, on there. But I would like to conclude with a final kind of question for both of you. And this has to do with kind of the the MO of the creation of this podcast. We created this podcast in a moment of a global pandemic where we literally saw the end of sport. Um, so the name comes out of this, I like comes out of the pandemic, which is basically there's no sport happening right now. So I am very curious for both of you um, if you could kind of put on your specul speculative glasses um, and and kind of answer, where do you think the future of college sport after the pandemic is going? And I guess we'll start with you, Victoria, uh, and then we'll go to Andy. One thing, you know, not only, um, you, you know, D Derek, you pointed out, like, if you're skeptical of what's going on with the PCL and the, the whole idea of, like, the college scholarship being this great education and and all of that, as you you pointed out, the other part of this, um, which has been incredibly frustrating um, as an educator at <laughs> an institution of higher education and also somebody who knows the athletic space pretty intimately, so much of what we're doing under the guise of amateurism is keeping athletes in the dark. Um, all of that kind of learning, like the, the education you need to become a professional athlete, to learn how to maximize your brand, to learn how to select an agent, to, to learn how to balance all of that. Um, that. That's a lot of work. And amateurism says you can't learn how to do that. Um, so, I mean, to a certain degree, amateurism is the antithesis of education because it's, Right, it's this whole idea that you aren't going to become pro. You're playing sport for sport's sake. So it's it's keeping athletes ignorant and inept. And um, I, I lived this when I tried to turn pro. 
I had no idea what I was doing, you know, which agent to sign with, which shoe company to sign with. Um, and so that's another educational value that I think you need to play up, Andy, is that the education that's denied athletes in the NCAA system that you're providing. Um, so sorry, that, that was not about the pandemic, but I can talk about that now. Um, I'm, I'm very worried um, about our athletes first. Um, our students who play sports um, experience disproportionately high mental health issues, and they've been cut off from sport. They've been cut off from that daily dose of endorphins and, and adrenaline and, and getting to hang out with their teammates. And that's really hard. And um, I liken it to when an athlete gets injured and you don't, you, you know, we no, none of us knew this was going to happen. And sometimes, you, you know, an injury is a surprise too. And then all of a sudden you can't do what you love to do or what you're so dependent upon um, to, to feel like yourself. And our, our college athletes identities are so bound up in, in, in the sports that they play. And, and um, it, I really worry about our, our students who play sports. I, I think that's the, the only place I can start. Um, when thinking about the effect of COVID-19 on, on college sports. The, the economics could, I mean, we're, <laughs> if there are, if there is not a football season in the fall, um, you know, those power five schools are going to be not receiving, um, I think USA Today said $77 million per institution, less than the, what they were depending on just as a baseline. Um, that, that, I mean, we lost our way a long time ago. We really lost our way about 15 years ago. That's where the acceleration just hit it an even higher speed. Um, this, this whole system accelerated from a $4 billion a year in, uh, industry to $14 billion a year industry in the span of about 15 years. Um, and so what if it, you know, what if the broadcasting rights market collapses and it goes back to a $4 billion a year industry across the board? Like there are going to be a lot, a lot of people out of work. There are going to be a lot of teams cut. Um, you know, <laughs> the athletic, all the things we've been pointing at, right? All of the exorbitant spending. Um, I don't know. I mean, we don't, we don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's a worst case scenario or somewhere in the middle. Um, and so, you know, we, um, a lot of us, I think, who are critics of big time college sports have often wondered what's the thing that's gonna finally bring this system back into some sort of realm of sanity or what's gonna disrupt it or what's gonna be the thing. You know, for a while people thought it was O'Bannon or or maybe congressional intervention or, or something. and. You know, as a historian, it's often the thing we never anticipate, and it, and it could be this pandemic and the economic crisis that comes off the pandemic. And my hope um, is that it's not tragic. My hope is that we get to some sort of sane system again um, where more people are playing sports and it's at a lo more localized level. Like part of this acceleration of big time college sports is that they've become more elite and less students actually get to play and maybe we actually return to some sort of idea of what scholastic sport is and professional college sports um, are thriving in the PCL with Andy's league and, and maybe some football teams 
become affiliated with schools, but they're kind of autonomous too, like we see in other countries. So I don't know, I, you know, part of me is optimistic that we'll, we'll figure this out, but history says otherwise, um, <laughs> that this, this system will continue to thrive and grow in the way that it has been for so long. Yeah, I think you, you raise actually a lot of really interesting points. And, and I'm particularly like, concerned, not just with with the the athletic labor but also like the the precarious and the contingent labor that like n needs to be there and staffing all of these events like i'm i'm really worried for those people who are already amongst the most vulnerable um um people um so i i'm really overall like i i share in your like i hope um i hope that there's some optimism to come out of there but like i I, I'm having a hard time grappling with that in my own mind. Um, Andy, what what are you thinking uh, on this this future of collegiate sport um, after the pandemic? I'm I'm a little less pessimistic than than I think Victoria is about the collapse that is potentially impending, and I, I think that's because um, I see look at D Division Two as an example. And I see colleges with no revenue that nevertheless sponsor sports. They they offer less generous uh, scholarships, perhaps, but and they have maybe fewer sports. But but there is a thriving D two and D three culture, and I think that's because completely separate from the commercial value of the high revenue sports, all of the other sports, all of which make some form of revenue for the university, whether it's in donations or tuition. Uh, paid by the athletes themselves, um, there's a value to those that will still be there two years from now when people can resume congregating, and there will be there are facilities on campuses that will allow people to congregate in hundreds and watch a volleyball game. And I think uh, that there are enough schools out there that recognize that that general kind of of bringing together of everybody on campus with a common rooting interest has value in the same way that that um, you know having the food court has value for making the college experience more fun. And as we mentioned, colleges are in a very competitive space. Uh, the population of high school graduates is shrinking as we move out of the millennial age, and we're now in Gen Z, and and there are just fewer going to be fewer people. There aren't fewer colleges. There will be because some colleges will go out of business. But essentially, um, the tools to attract college athletes, sorry, college students that include college athletics will still be there. And also, I think two years from now, the demand for the high revenue sports will be will be there. People will still want it. And if you've got the facilities, it's really you got the facilities, you've got the brand, you can put on the event. It's no longer forbidden. People are getting their jobs back. I think it's a matter of what does the next few years look like. And I, you know, I could see especially with the current administration, I could see an economic disaster as stupid move after stupid move is compounding itself. And, and uh, I could also see a relatively quick resumption if we're lucky, if, if there's a vaccine, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not pessimistic about sports in the college space in the long run or even the medium run. I just think in the short run, a lot of a very, very high paid people are going to find that their schools are just going to stiff them, and that there'll be there'll be there'll be lots of litigation and things like that, and that's 
that's good for my business. And then, um, <laughs> and they'll work through the, the hiccup. It's going to be a horrible hiccup. I think of the heart attack. And, um, but when we come out on the other end, I don't think that there will be radically different demand by D1 schools for the, the women's cross country team. I think it'll be about the same. And, and um, what might happen in the meantime might be positive for helping schools get some control over coaching salary. Though I think that that will just skyrocket again too, as long as the, the factors of demand and supply don't change. So how do those factors change? Well, as you mentioned, the, the G League has come in. The, there's the Australian and New Zealand-based NBL, the, the National Basketball League of Australia, which is also in New Zealand. Mm. They have started offering contracts. Now, the kind of guys that they were going after are probably going to move to the G League, but they'll be out there competing with the PCL for that next level of athlete. And if we are successful, we launch in, in June of, of next year, 2021, um, then, then that will change the, the cost structure of, of men's college basketball anyway, eventually women's college basketball, and schools will have to adapt. Now, this pandemic pause may make it harder for them because they won't have the huge reserve surplus that they might have felt. The NCAA actually just basically emptied its reserve and um, sent it out to the schools. It was less than they would have normally sent out, um, but they have nothing left. So, so competitively, they're in a slightly weaker position. But on the other hand, those schools have really strong brands. If tomorrow the ACC said, you know what, we're not amateur anymore. We're, we're going to compete against all comers. They'd have a nice head, head start and could really do well, but their profits would be lower. And it's not clear to me that in that academic space, they, the schools really want the headache of running a professional league um, without – they're running a professional league now in all but pay. But if they pay the athletes their, their, their value, there won't be all this surplus profit, the, the extraction of value, the unfair extraction of value. There will only be the fair value. And it's not clear to me that the schools will want to go there, in which case groups like the PCL can essentially be the place that people go and watch elite college basketball players, future NBA or European or Australian stars when they're in college. And D1 will essentially become like a D1.5 and be closer maybe to what a lot of academics would want, which is essentially um, people who come on campus primarily to, to learn and who also do a sport in, in an intercollegiate way as a hobby. I think that might be healthy. Um, I, I, I don't really have a preference if the, if the schools want to compete with us. I think that's great. I'm, I'm very much all about market competition. That's my whole life. Um, if on the other hand, the schools see this as a moment for them to turn a page on being a minor league and instead, um, go to being a, um, having sports be a minor thing on campus, um, that might be okay too. Um, so I think that's the big thing because I'm an economist, I think all the time about demand and I think a lot of people who aren't economists think all the time about cost, which is really a, a supply factor. Um, if there are people willing to pay money to watch sports or pay money to donate for scholarships, there will be college sports. And it's mm -hmm. only when that goes away. And that's really why things are in jeopardy right now, because it's not clear that the school is going to be able 
to capitalize on the demand for sport right now. There's plenty of demand. I wish, I don't really wish we had launched this year because I guess it would be hard for us to figure out how to make it happen. But you can see some yeah. leagues like the the Professional Lacrosse League, they're working their way towards solutions. I wish we were in a position to capitalize on all this demand. Um, and in, until, less than until people stop wanting to watch sports on TV, I think that sports will be fine, even if in the next couple of years things are bad. Well, Victoria Jackson and Andy Schwartz, thanks so much for your insight. This was an incredible primer for all of us on the NCAA, amateurism, name, image, and likeness, and the future of college sports. Thank you both. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Derek. Thanks, Andy. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel to like, share, and leave a review. And as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod.